Hi, Dave Emery here. This is for the record program number 1232. How many lies before you belong to the lie? Part 5. This is being recorded on March 9th of the year 2022. Before getting into the program, three links. One of those links will enable you to subscribe to the comments, most of which are made by our brilliant contributing editor, Terrafractal, sometimes by other intelligent listeners. As things develop or <laughs> disintegrate might be a better way of talking about it, uh, the comments made by Parafractal, particularly in connection with the war in Ukraine, are uh, relevant to an even greater degree. I simply do not have the time to cover what is needed in a one-hour program. I'm going to be doing a Patreon site with audio files that will also be translated uh, or uh not translated, but uh, turned into uh, written printouts uh, so that I can do a less formal presentation. That will I will give you information about that when that gets going. But uh, in the meantime, it, it, and, and even after that, it will be essential to access the uh, comments that Parafractal is making. So... Uh, you're going to want to make a point of doing that. The second link will enable you to subscribe to the podcasts that are being made by Sister Station WFMU. So if podcasts are the best way for you to consume the program, then WFMU is doing just that. And the third link is really important for a very nominal fee, and it is tax deductible if you itemize your deductions. Uh, the 32 gigabyte flash drive containing uh, the vast bulk of not only my 43 plus years on the air, but um, the uh, the the well, basically everything that's on the SpitfireList.com website plus a mini library of old anti-fascist books is on that website. No one knows what the future holds. I could not be more pessimistic. I've been warning for a long time about the uh, advent of what I thought would be a third world war. Whether or not this expands into the big casino and goes nuclear, uh, I think this is... Uh, basically part of the phenomenon that I had seen coming. Uh, to make a long story short, I think we are doomed as a civilization, and uh, I think that it is imperative for members of the listening audience to get that flash drive and in so doing to make yourselves a repository for information that will enable you to inform successive or succeeding generations about just what in bloody hell happened. Why are they living in a ruined world? Uh, because ruin is the uh, order of the day. And by the way, that is my entire life's work. Uh, I, I went on the air in the fall of 1979, and it is everything that I have done, and I get no money from that. So, uh, again, please get that flash drive. It is available for a very nominal fee, very small, and it is tax deductible. 
Now, the title of this series, How Many Lies Before You Belong to the Lie, is a quote from the brilliant late comedian Mort Saul, uh, arguably the best uh, stand-up political comedian in history, and uh, also, by the way, not incidentally, one of New Orleans D.A. Jim Garrison's investigators in his investigation of the assassination of JFK. And it was, by the way, in my uh, research into the assassination of JFK that I first came across the OUNB and Stefan Bondera and the Ukrainian fascists and Nazi collaborators who are our media notwithstanding in uh, the driver's seat in the Ukrainian government. We're going to be talking more about that later. But Martzol observed in his 1976 autobiography, Heartland, quote, How many lies before you belong to the lie. In other words, how many lies can you allow yourself to believe before you belong to the lie? Well, I think we've gotten there as a society, and uh, the war in Ukraine is indeed uh, behaving. The more time passes, the more I'm convinced that my observation about the war itself and the attendant coverage, at least in the U.S. and the West, it is like... The philosopher's stone of the old alchemists, it is uh, effecting an alchemical transformation of our entire society and our culture and just about everybody in it into an historical Orwellian revisionism along the lines of the Ukrainian Institute of National Memory being overseen by Volodymyr Vyotrovich. In that institution, which is dominant in Ukraine, they are literally rewriting Ukraine's history of World War II. And uh, that is what is taking place in our society as a whole. Well, more about that in just a minute. Another very important quote about lying. This one comes from Adolf Hitler's Mein Kampf. Hitler observed that, quote, most people tell little lies. They would be ashamed to tell big ones. They would never credit others with such great impudence as the complete reversal of fact. Even explanations would long leave them in doubt and hesitation as any trifling detail would dispose them to accept the thing as true. All good liars know this and therefore stop at nothing to achieve this end. Uh, it is the concept of the big lie and the grasp by Hitler of that concept and his use of it was the essence of his genius. And the <clears throat> third quote uh, of vis-a-vis lying and truth is an old Turkish proverb, quote, He who tells the truth gets chased out of nine villages. Well, that is true, too. And with the stunning Orwellian revisionism with our entire culture and most of its institutions and an awful lot of the people in it uh, basically being alchemically transformed by the war and its coverage like the old philosopher's stone of the alchemists into uh, historical revisionists pro-Nazis, although they don't realize it and would uh, deny that, along the lines of Volodymyr Vyotrovich's Ukrainian Institute of National Memory, which we spoke about at great length in this series. 
there was uh, an observation in an article on Consortium News offered by Patrick Lawrence. And it had a Twitter uh, message with an embedded video. Uh, you can visit that. In fact, you know what? I'll put that in the written description for this program. It is already in a comment that I put in response to uh, a comment by Terrafractal. The mayor of the village of Kamantop, or the city of Kamantop, and I may be mispronouncing that, he is a member of Svoboda, the one of the fascist parties in charge of Ukraine, and he was interviewed on the PBS News Hour and presented as an anti-Russian hero, blah, 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 blah. Uh, behind him, although it is blurred with the zoom effect, is a portrait of Stefan Bondera, the leader of the OUNB, uh, one of the primary uh, Nazi collaborationist organizations that we have spoken about. And again, I first came across them in connection with their role in the assassination of President Kennedy. And uh, watching PBS, I've watched the <laughs> segment, uh, watching them just uncritically present this Nazi, again, a member of Svoboda as an anti-Russian hero, with the picture of Stefan Bondera in the background, blurred but still recognizable, is surreal, and it exemplifies and it embodies what I am talking about when I talk about the war and its dependent coverage as a philosopher's stone, in effect, producing an alchemical transformation of this society into uh, basically Nazi collaborators or uh, justifiers would be a uh, better word talking about it. Uh, again, the title from Mark Saul's autobiography, How Many Lies before you belong to the lie. And for most of the people and most of the institutions in the U.S. and in the West, they belong to the lie. They are the lie. You know, and they don't even realize it. It's like, uh, for the record, uh, I forgot what, what number, what program number I did it, but uh, there is a, that more than one for the record program involves reading from a book called They Thought they were free. And in there, there is an interview with a German university professor who was opposed to Hitler and the Nazis who lived through their rise, and he talks about what it was like to experience that. And most of the people simply did not realize that they were gradually being transformed into Nazis and fascists. And that, sadly, is coming to pass in this country as well. Uh, I fault the news media perhaps more than anything else. And yet in those news media, the so-called progressive media, worse, most of all, because they pretend to be better and they are not. Uh, PBS pretends to be a, uh, quote, progressive, unquote, media. Uh, for them to present the, the Svoboda mayor of Komantop uh, as an anti-Russian hero blah, 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 with a picture of Stefan Bondera uh, still visible, recognizable in the background. Well, it is surreal. And that program, the PBS NewsHour, should drop the P and just make its title the BS NewsHour, because that is what it has become. Uh, now, there is much to talk about. Uh, the coverage of the war itself is, it, it exemplifies 
what the brilliant Douglas Valentine spoke about in his volume, The CIA is Organized. Kwan, he spoke about uh, some, I've forgotten who minted the phrase, but the society of spectacle. We remain transfixed by these spectacles. And that is what we're seeing. We're seeing images of, you know, exploding things and burning things and, you know, destroyed buildings, dead people, uh, people crying and, and wailing and trying to get out of the way and so forth. Uh, what this is, is war. It is the worst thing in the world. And uh, that is why, by the way, I have devoted my life to working to prevent things like this. I'm not a pacifist, but uh, there are times to fight. It should be the last resort. For the U.S., it's not only the first, it's the only resort now. But uh, most of the people in this society have basically devoted their life's energies to feathering their own nest. I, on the other hand, have been doing this, and it is war. But we're not even getting a realistic picture of the war. Uh, I have been starved for valid military-slash-battlefield news. It certainly does not appear that uh, the... Russian military has performed uh, the way it was thought to be doing. I wonder what sort of, the Russian military has to have some sort of drone warfare capability of its own. Are they not using it? Anyway, um, the coverage itself, though, is spectacle. It is meant to inflame. It reminds me of uh, 1984. It's the five minutes, or is it 20 seconds, or two minutes of hate, where everybody you know freaks out and goes, "Yeah, you know," and, and Big Brother uh, lays it on them. And that is what has basically taken place. Uh, the OUNB milieu in charge of national security in Ukraine specializes in provocations. So I would be very careful if I were you about provocations. How many of the atrocities we're seeing are actually atrocities, uh, certainly in war, when you have urban areas and you're using powerful military explosives and munitions, uh, there's going to be a lot of destruction and a lot of death. But the OUNB milieu specializes in provocations. There was in the, I know, know that, uh, that they, uh, Ukrainian human rights, uh, official uh, was charging in no uncertain terms that the Russians were deliberately targeting hospitals and the primitive wards and so forth, which I simply do not believe. Uh, and then, lo and behold, just before the first face-to-face meeting between the foreign ministers of Ukraine and the and Russia to uh, negotiate a maternity ward in uh, Ukraine gets hit. Whether that was a provocation, whether it was a mistake, whether the communications, which apparently uh, Russian military communications have not been secure, were skewed to produce that hit, I don't know. But uh, indicative of some of the BS we're hearing, and I'm going to get down to some of these sub into the coverage. I remember Zelensky, and we're going to talk about his, quote, Jewishness, unquote, which has been used to rebut the fact uh, of fascists and Nazis being in control of the national security organs in Ukraine and the education ministry itself, and suppressing media coverage, terrorizing journalists of the LGBT community, uh, feminist organizations, uh, creating pogroms against Roma. None of that 
is being discussed in our media. But uh, Zelensky was up there talking about how the Russians have brought mobile crematoria with them to incinerate their beds so that the uh, true battlefield toll won't be known. Uh, apparently they have uh, had major problems with logistical supply, food and fuel, etc. The notion that they're bringing mobile crematoria with them when they uh, are having trouble supplying their troops with food and fuel is, well, it, it is comical. And Zelensky is, by the way, a television comedian. We're going to talk about uh, his uh, backers, by the way, he was uh, his, his primary financial backer was Ihor Kolomoyskoy, who was also one of the major financial backers of the Azov Battalion. And as we looked at in past programs in this series, the Azov Battalion's National Trzyma Militia were serving as election monitors in Ukraine. But more about that in a minute. In 43-plus years on the air, uh, I have never seen a more important article than one that was carried in the Consortium News. This is really, really important. And uh, it shows two key pieces of information that I think uh, were basically used to bait Russia into the invasion. Uh, as I've said before, I think the invasion, well, it, well, it certainly is welcomed by the West. It is what they wanted. It's what people are digging. And you know, again, it's like in, in 1984, the five minutes of hate or two minutes of hate. I don't remember how long it was. I read that a long time ago. But people are loving this. and Everybody's getting into the act. Uh, I noted... In my past discussions that the, the Soviet Union's invasion of Afghanistan was actually baited by then Jimmy Carter National Security Advisor Zbigniew Brzezinski, who comes from the uh, reactionary in Eastern European uh, institutions that were allied with the Galen Organization. Uh, and I felt that uh, this was a European iteration of that. It is aimed at, whether it succeeds, it is aimed at regime change in Moscow. It's also aimed at weakening China and putting them in a tough spot. I noted something uh, this past week. Uh, the One of the top conservative-slash-right-wing think tanks that is very much involved with the OUNB milieu is the Atlantic Council, reading from an article that we looked at in the For the Record 1098, as well as in For the Record Program 1229 and 1230, from Covert Action uh, magazine from March of 2019. Imagine European geographies. There's a link in the program of the Atlantic Council. In 1967, the World Congress of Free Ukrainians was founded in New York City by supporters of Andre Melnik. He was the head of the OUNM, also aligned with Nazi Germany, as was the OUNB. It was renamed the Ukrainian World Congress in 1993. In 2003, the Ukrainian World Congress was recognized by the United Nations Economic and Social Council as an NGO with special consultative status. It now appears as a sponsor of the Atlantic Council. 
The continuity of institutional and individual trajectories from Second World War collaborationists to Cold War-era anti-communist organizations to contemporary conservative U.S. think tanks is significant for the ideological underpinnings of today's intermarian revival. Guess who is a major member, as a very important member of the aforementioned OUNB-linked, or OUNM, and OUNB-linked Atlantic Council. Ian Brzezinski, Shabignev Brzezinski's son. I, I strongly suspect, again, that what we're seeing in Ukraine is a uh, recap, a European recapitulation of the uh, Afghanistan gambit that was hatched by Zbigniew Brzezinski. He put together a covert operation in Afghanistan to lure the Soviets into their Vietnam, unquote. Uh, one of the things about our media uh, and our, at this point, dreadfully, drastically censored media is that it controls what people think. And that is one of the major things that is producing this alchemical transformation uh, into the, along the lines of the uh, Ukrainian Institute of National Memory. The aforementioned Consortium News featured an article that is as, as important as anything I have ever seen. It is called Ukraine and Nukes by Stephen Starr, published by Consortium News on March 3rd of 2022. Stephen Starr is a former member of Physicians for Responsibility and an anti-nuclear and peace activist. Uh, one of the stated war aims of uh, Putin was denazification, and that has been widely poo-pooed, in part because of the very real Nazification of Ukraine, which I have been documenting on and off uh, for eight years since the Maidan coup, has largely been left out of Western and U.S. media in particular. Uh, one of the other stated aims of Putin was the denuclearization, basically to uh, remove the possibility of Ukraine becoming a nuclear power. He also did not want it to be affiliated with NATO. I'm going to read this article in its entirety, but the key elements of it, and they are very, very important, I'm going to read in advance. Uh, one of the things that I think baited the trap for Ukraine was that basically in a 2019 address to the Munich Security Conference, Zelensky basically said it's either NATO or nukes. Uh, the Budapest Memorandum was the series of protocols under which Ukraine in 1994 gave up its considerable nuclear stockpile acquired during the period when it was part of the Soviet Union. Again, the uh, surrender by Ukraine of its nukes was under the Budapest Memorandum. And Zelensky was basically saying we are going to renegotiate and, and uh, negate the agreements of the Budapest Memorandum if we don't get NATO membership. Uh, the thing to think about is this. Uh, either Zelensky was going to uh, get nukes, and we'll talk about that in a minute, or they were going to get uh, NATO membership. If 
Ukraine and did become a member of NATO, then they would be protected uh, under the auspices of NATO and they could develop nukes with impunity because if Russia attacked, then NATO would come to its aid and it would be World War III. In response to a, a characteristically misleading article in the New York Times by David Sanger, uh, Stephen Starr wrote, After a New York Times reporter grossly distorted what Putin and Zelensky have said and done about nuclear weapons, Stephen Starr corrects the record and deplores Western media in general for misinforming and leaving the entire world in a dangerous direction. And now again, uh, excerpting the article. In other words, the Budapest Memorandum, again, through which Ukraine surrendered its nukes in 1994, was expressly about Ukraine giving up its nukes and not becoming a nuclear weapon state in the future. Zelensky's speech at Munich made it clear that Ukraine was moving to repudiate the Budapest Memorandum. Zelensky essentially stated, that Ukraine must be made a member of NATO, otherwise it would acquire nuclear weapons. And still more. So when the leader of Ukraine essentially threatens to obtain nuclear weapons, this is most certainly considered to be an existential threat to Russia. That is why Putin focused on this during his speech preceding the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Sanger and the New York Times must discount a Ukrainian nuclear threat They can get away with doing so because they have systematically omitted news pertaining to this for many years. Now, one of the many terrifying aspects of the war there has been the combat around nuclear sites in Ukraine. Uh, This next factor talks about that. Uh, and basically to sum up, I'm going to read the verbiage here in a second, and I'm going to read the entire article, but Ukraine has a lot of nuclear power plants, and plutonium, an optimum fuel for nuclear weapons, is one of the byproducts of nuclear fission, and the nuclear waste produced by the reactors can be used to get plutonium to build nuclear weapons. One more time. Quoting from Stephen Star's article. Ukraine has plenty of plutonium, which is commonly used to make nuclear weapons today. Eight years ago, Ukraine held more than 50 tons of plutonium in its spent fuel assemblies stored at its many nuclear power plants, probably considerably more today, as the reactors have continued to run and produce spent fuel. Once plutonium is reprocessed, and separated from the spent nuclear fuel, it becomes weapon-usable. Putin noted that Ukraine already has missiles that could carry nuclear warheads, and they certainly have scientists capable of developing reprocessing facilities and building nuclear weapons. In his February 21st televised address, Putin said Ukraine still has the infrastructure left over from Soviet days to build a bomb, quoting, Ukraine has the nuclear technologies created back in the Soviet times and delivery vehicles for such weapons, including aircraft, as well as the Soviet-designed Toshko-U precision tactical missiles with a range of over 100 kilometers. We've not been told that. Uh, It also, you know, the initiating of combat around Ukraine's nuclear facilities has simply been used to 
add to the uh, Putin is a madman uh, uh, meme, it actually makes a great deal of sense in light of this. What Russian forces are apparently doing is attempting to get control militarily of those areas. Uh, when uh, last I heard this morning, the power had been cut off with the Chernobyl plant that may endanger the cooling systems. I wonder, too, about the cyber weaponry that was installed by Obama and the NSA on Soviet, I'm not Soviet, there, there I go, uh, Russian uh, utility networks uh, in 2019. Could some of those maybe be cutting off that, that uh, power? I don't know. This is pure speculation. But again, maybe one of the most terrifying of the many horrifying aspects of the war is the military action around those nuclear power plants. It has been maintained, well, you know, it's Putin, the madman. No, unfortunately, it makes only too much sense. What the Russian forces are looking to do is to get a hold of those areas where a Repository for Ukrainian nuclear waste was hit, so was a, uh, a uh, laboratory that was uh, processing nuclear uh, material for medical use. And again, that is portrayed as, you know, the Putin the madman and the crazy Russians. Uh, in light of this, it makes only too much sense. And um, other aspects of what I believe was the bait for the trap, the New York Times in this overall coverage, chose not to report that Ukrainian forces had deployed half its army, about 125,000 troops, to its border with Donbass beginning in, in the beginning of 2022. One more time. The New York Times, in its overall coverage, chose not to report that the Ukrainian forces had deployed half of its army, about 125,000 troops, to its border with Donbass by the beginning of 2022. I said in uh, programs 1226 and 1227 that I did not think uh, Putin was going to invade Ukraine. I said that if there is a military an attempt by the Ukrainian government to militarily uh, recapture those breakaway provinces, then there would be war. And it certainly looks that if there was not an actual offensive intended, there was an intensification of fighting to be sure, and with 125,000 Ukrainian troops massed on the border, something we were not told about, uh, it looks like something like that was either being actively contemplated or was being faked to lure the Russians in. But again, the Ministry of Truth did not tell us about those 125,000 Ukrainian troops. Uh, and still more to the about the secession bid by the, uh, Donetsk and Lukansk. Both the provinces of Donetsk and Lukansk in the Donbass region voted for independence from Ukraine in 2014 in resistance to a U.S.-backed coup that overthrew the elected president, Viktor Yanukovych, in February of that year. The independence vote came just eight days after neo-Nazis burned dozens of ethnic Russians alive in Odessa. To crush their bid for independence, the new U.S.-installed Ukrainian government then launched an anti-terrorist, unquote, war against the provinces with the assistance of the Neo-Nazi Azov Battalion, which had taken part in the coup. It is a war that is still going on eight years later, a war that Russia has just 
entered, uh, parenthetically, the Azov Battalion. It really should be, I think, correctly uh, seen as the Azov Manifestation, as it is much larger with Roman Svaric, uh World War II Ukrainian uh, head Yaroslav Stetsko's personal secretary in the early 1980s, being the driving force behind it, its official spokesperson and a funder of it, and also he served as the Minister of Justice, the equivalent of Attorney General in the Viktor Yushchenko government and both governments of Yulia Timoshenko, and the Azov Battalion's National Dzima Militia, uh, will not only not only have police powers in 21 Ukrainian cities, but they also uh, served as election monitors for Volodymyr Zelensky. And the last excerpt before I read the article. For years, the U.S. proclaimed that the ballistic missile defense or BMB facilities it was placing in Romania and Poland on the Russian border would be protected against an Iranian threat, unquote, even though Iran had no nuclear weapons or missiles that could reach the U.S. But the dual-use Mark 41 launching systems used in the Aegis Ashore BMB facilities can be used to launch Tomahawk cruise missiles and will be fitted with SM-6 missiles that, if armed with nuclear warheads, could hit Moscow in five to six minutes. Putin explicitly warned journalists about this danger in 2016. Russia included the removal of the U.S. BNB facilities in Romania and Poland in its draft treaties presented to the U.S. and NATO last December. By the way, it was in late December on Christmas Eve that the United Nations voted 130 to 2, 130 nations for and two nations against a resolution condemning Nazism. The two nations who voted against it, the U.S., and the Ukraine. The EU and UK abstained. So those are key elements reading this article, again, as important an article as I have seen. The Ukraine and Nukes by Stephen Starr from Consortium News of May 3rd, 2022. And the introduction, after the New York Times reported grossly distorted what Putin and Zelensky have said and done about nuclear weapons, Stephen Starr corrects the record and deplores Western media in general for misinforming and leading the entire world in a dangerous direction. The New York Times recently published an article by David Sanger entitled Putin Spins a Conspiracy Theory that Ukraine is on a path to produce nuclear weapons, unquote. Unfortunately, it is Sanger who puts so much spin in his reporting that he leaves his readers with a grossly distorted version of what the presidents of Russia and Ukraine have said and done. Ukrainian Volodymyr Zelensky's recent statements at the Munich conference centered around the 1994 Budapest Memorandum, which welcomed Ukraine's accession to the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, or NPP, in conjunction with Ukraine's decision to return to Russia the nuclear weapons left on its territory by the Soviet Union. In other words, the Budapest Memorandum was expressly about Ukraine giving up its nukes and not becoming a nuclear weapon state in the future. Zelensky's speech at Munich made it clear that Ukraine was moving to repudiate the Budapest Memorandum. Zelensky essentially stated, 
that Ukraine must be made a member of NATO, otherwise it would acquire nuclear weapons. And by the way, parenthetically, if it did become a member of NATO, they could go ahead and do that anyway, because if Russia attacked, then it would be World War III, because NATO would come to its defense. This is what Zelensky said, with emphasis added. I want to believe that the North Atlantic Treaty and Article 5 will be more effective than the Budapest Memorandum, that is, Article 5 uh, mandates that other NATO states would come to their aid if they joined NATO. Ukraine has received security guarantees for abandoning the world's third nuclear capability, i.e. Ukraine relinquished the Soviet nuclear weapons that had been placed in Ukraine during the Cold War. We don't have that weapon. Therefore, we do have something. The right to demand a shift from a policy of appeasement i.e. the Budapest Accords, to ensuring security and peace guarantees. Since 2014, Ukraine has tried three times to convene consultations with the guarantor states of the Budapest Memorandum. Three times without success. I am initiating consultations in the framework of the Budapest Memorandum. This is oblique diplomatic language, but basically they are looking to revise and renegotiate the Budapest Memorandum, which basically made them part and parcel to the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. In other words, they're going to go for nukes, continuing. The Minister of Foreign Affairs was commissioned to convene them. If they do not happen again or their results do not guarantee security for our country, Ukraine will have every right to believe that the Budapest Memorandum is not working and all the package decisions of 1994 are in doubt. And again, uh, uh, it's I am initiating consultations in the framework of the Budapest Memorandum. The Minister of Foreign Affairs was commissioned to convene them. If they do not happen again or the results do not guarantee security for our country, Ukraine will have every right to believe that the Budapest Memorandum is not working and all the package decisions of 1994 are in doubt. This after saying, I want to believe that the North Atlantic Treaty and Article 5 will be more effective, i.e. at guaranteeing their security, than the Budapest Memorandum. And continuing with uh, David Starr's, uh, Stephen Starr's article. Sanger's Pines article implies that it was a, quote, conspiracy theory that Zelensky was calling for Ukraine to acquire nuclear weapons. Sanger was not ignorant of the meaning of the Budapest Memorandum. Rather, he chose to deliberately ignore it and misrepresented the facts. President Vladimir Putin, along with the majority of Russians, could not ignore such a threat for a, number, for a number of historical reasons that the New York Times and ideologues such as Sanger have also chosen to ignore. It is important to list some of those facts, since most Americans were unaware of them, as they have not been reported in the Western mainstream media. Leaving parts of the story out turns Putin into just a madman bent on conquest without any reason to intervene. First, both the provinces of Donetsk and Lukansk in the Donbass region voted for independence from Ukraine in 2014 in resistance to a U.S.-backed coup that overthrew the elected president, Viktor Yanukovych, in February of that year. 
The independence vote came just eight days after neo-Nazis burned dozens of ethnic Russians alive in Odessa. To crush their bid for independence, the new U.S.-installed Ukrainian government then launched and quote, anti-terrorist war against provinces, against the provinces, with the assistance of the neo-Nazi Azov battalion, which had taken part in the coup. It is a war that is still going on eight years later, a war that Russia has just entered. During these eight years, the Ukrainian armed forces and Azov have used artillery, snipers, and assassination teams to systematically butcher more than 5,000 people. Another 8,000 were wounded, mostly civilians, in the Donetsk People's Republic, according to the leader of the DPR, who provided these figures in a press conference recently. In the Lukansk People's Republic, an additional 2,000 civilians were killed and 3,365 injured. The total number of people killed and wounded in Donbass since 2014 is more than 18,000. This has received at most superficial coverage by the New York Times. It has not been covered by Western corporate media because it does not fit the official Washington narrative that Ukraine is pursuing a, quote, anti-terrorist operation, unquote, in its unrelenting impacts on the people of Donbass. For eight years, the war instead has been portrayed as a Russian invasion, unquote, well before Russia's current intervention. Likewise, the New York Times in its overall coverage chose not to report that the Ukrainian forces had deployed half its army, about 125,000 troops to its border with Donbass by the beginning of 2022. The importance of neo-Nazi white sector politicians in the Ukraine government and neo-Nazi militias such as the Azov Battalion to the Ukrainian Armed Forces also goes unreported in the mainstream corporate media. The Azov Battalion flies Nazi flags. They have been trained by teams of U.S. military advisors and praised on Facebook these days. In 2014, Azov was incorporated in the Ukrainian National Guard under the, director, under, under the direction of the Interior Ministry. And as I've indicated, the Azov manifestation is much broader than the Azov Battalion, per se, as we reviewed in the beginning of this program. Continuing. The Nazis killed on the orbit of 27 million Soviets and Russians during World War II. The U.S. lost 404,000. Russia has not forgotten and is extremely sensitive to any threats and violence coming from neo-Nazis. Americans generally do not understand what this means to Russians as the United States has never been invaded. So when the leader of Ukraine essentially threatens to obtain nuclear weapons, this is most certainly considered to be an existential threat to Russia. That is why Putin focused on this during his speech preceding the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Sanger and the New York Times must discount a Ukrainian nuclear threat. They can get away with doing so because they have systematically omitted news pertaining to this for many years. Sanger makes a very misleading statement when he writes, quote, Today, Ukraine does not even have the basic infrastructure to produce nuclear fuel, unquote. Ukraine is not interested in making nuclear fuel, which Ukraine already purchases from the U.S. 
Ukraine has plenty of plutonium, which is commonly used to make nuclear weapons today. Eight years ago, Ukraine held more than 50 tons of plutonium in its spent fuel assemblies stored at its many nuclear power plants, probably considerably more today, as the reactors have continued to run and produce spent fuel. Once plutonium is reprocessed or separated from the spent nuclear fuel, it becomes weapons usable. Putin noted that Ukraine already has missiles that could carry nuclear warheads, and they certainly have scientists capable of developing reprocessing facilities and building nuclear weapons. In his February 21st televised address, Putin said Ukraine still has the infrastructure left over from Soviet days to build the bomb. He said, quote, As we know, it has already been stated that Ukraine intends to create its own nuclear weapons, and this is not just bragging. Ukraine has the nuclear technologies created back in the Soviet times and delivery vehicles for such weapons, including aircraft, such as the Soviet-designed Toshko-U precision tactical missiles with a range of over 100 kilometers. But they can do more. It is only a matter of time. They have had the groundwork for this since the Soviet era. In other words, Acquiring tactical nuclear weapons will be much easier for Ukraine than for some other states I am not going to mention here, which are conducting such research, especially if Kiev receives foreign technological support. We cannot rule this out either. If Ukraine acquires weapons of mass destruction, the situation in the world and in Europe will drastically change, especially for us, for Russia. We cannot but react to this real danger all the more so since, let me repeat, Ukraine's Western patrons may help it acquire these weapons to create yet another threat to our country, unquote. Those are not the words of a madman. The article continues, in, uh, in his Times piece, Sanger states, quote, American officials have said repeatedly that they have no plans to place nuclear weapons in Ukraine, unquote. But the U.S., and NATO have refused to sign legally binding treaties with Russia to this effect. In reality, the U.S. has been making Ukraine a de facto member of NATO while training and supplying its military forces and conducting joint exercises on Ukrainian territory. Why wouldn't they place U.S. nuclear weapons in Ukraine? They have already done so at military bases within the borders of five other European members of NATO. This, in fact, violates the spirit of the nuclear of NPT, another issue that Sanger avoids when he notes that Russia has demanded that the U.S. remove nuclear weapons from the European NATO member states. For years, the U.S. proclaimed that the ballistic missile facilities it was building in Romania and Poland on the Russian border were there to protect against, quote, an Iranian threat, unquote, even though Iran had no nuclear weapons or missiles that could reach the U.S. But the dual-use Mark 41 launching systems used in the Aegis Ashore B&B facilities can be used to launch Tomahawk cruise missiles and will be fitted with SM-6 missiles that, if armed with nuclear warheads, could hit Moscow in five to six minutes. Putin explicitly warned journalists about this danger in 2016. 
Russia included the removal of the U.S. BMB facilities in Romania and Poland in its draft treaties presented to the U.S. and NATO last December. I wonder if Sanger has ever considered what the U.S. response would be if Russia placed missile-launching facilities in the Canadian... Begin again. I wonder if Sanger has ever considered what the U.S. response would be if Russia placed missile-launching facilities on the Canadian or Mexican border. Would the U.S. consider that a threat? Would it demand that Russia remove them, or else the U.S. would use military means to do so? Sanger states that today Russia takes a, quote, sparkly different tone from the one Moscow was taking 30 years ago when Russian nuclear scientists were being voluntarily retrained to use their skills for peaceful purposes, unquote. Russians would reply that 30 years ago, NATO had not moved to Russian borders and was not flooding Ukraine with hundreds of tons of weapons, and the U.S. had not yet overthrown the government in Kiev to install an anti-Russian regime. While the Times is still considered the U.S. paper of record, unquote, during the last few decades, it has devolved into the primary mouthpiece for the official narrative coming from Washington. There is a real danger to the nation when a free press is replaced with corporate media that stifles and censors dissent. Rather than a free press, we now have a ministry of propaganda that acts as an echo chamber for the latest diktats from the White House. The systematic creation of false narratives by corporate media designed to serve the purposes of the federal government have so misinformed the American public about world events that we find the nation ready to go to war with Russia. This is, su- a, this is a suicidal course for not only the U.S. and the EU, but for civilization as a whole, because this would likely end in a nuclear war that will destroy all nations and peoples. By the way, one of the very few people talking about the fascists in uh, power in Ukraine and uh, some of the points just taken here is Chris Hedges, who has a, uh, well, he's been featured in a number of media voices. Uh, he uh, speaks on Pacifica, uh, Pacifica Radio, and others, one of the very few uh, sane voices on that uh, uh, outlet. Uh, before we wrap things up, we've got about 10 minutes left. The Orwellian aspect of it, and frankly, this stuff makes me want to puke. The New York Times uh, editorial on Sunday, March 6th, last Sunday, is called, An Example for the World, Mr. Zelensky's Historic Resistance is an Example for the World. It just makes me want to puke. One of the points of refutation from the obviously valid, stated, goal of the war there, of the Russian invasion, which is denazification, an absolutely relevant and valid uh, justification, uh, that has been rebutted by citing the fact that Zelensky is a uh, is of Jewish extraction. It's not clear that he was a practicing Jew, but uh, we won't have time to read uh, much of this article. We will come back to it in our next program. This also is from Consortium News and been turned from the gray zone by Alex Rubenstein and Max Blumenthal. How Zelensky made peace with neo-Nazis from Consortium News, March 4th, 
of 20.22. And it's not just that he made peace with them, which he did, but let's take a look at this. Zelensky's top financial backer, as always, by the way, followed the money. Zelensky's top financial backer, the Ukrainian Jewish oligarch Igor Kolomoisky, K-O-L-O-M-O-I-S-K-Y, variously transliterated from the Cyrillic alphabet. Once again, Zelensky's top financial backer, the Ukrainian Jewish oligarch Igor Kolomoskoy, has been a key benefactor of the neo-Nazi Azov Battalion and other extremist militias. One more time. Zelensky's top financial backer, the Ukrainian Jewish oligarch Igor Kolomoskoy, has been a key benefactor of the neo-Nazi Azov Battalion and other extremist militias. Igor Kolomoiskoy, a Ukrainian energy baron of Jewish heritage, has been a top funder of Azov since it was formed in 2014. He has also bankrolled private militias like the Dnipro and Abar battalions and has deployed them as a personal thug squad to protect his financial interests. Though Zelensky made anti-corruptionist signature issue of his campaign, the Pandora Papers exposed him and members of his inner circle stashing large payments from Kolomoiskoy in a shadowy web of offshore accounts. Now, uh, as we looked at in uh, our last couple of programs, who were the election monitors in the election that uh, saw Zelensky become president? Uh, quoting from a uh, Review for Europe uh, article, they are the ultra-nationalist National Militia. Street vigilantes with roots in the battle-tested Azov Battalion that emerged to defend Ukraine against Russian-backed separatists that was also accused of possible war crimes and neo-Nazi sympathies. Again, with roots in the battle-tested Azov Battalion. Yet despite this controversy surrounding it, the National Militia was granted permission by the Central Election Commission to officially monitor Ukraine's presidential election on March 31st, in which Zelensky got elected, and his top financial backer, Kolomoiskoy, is a top financial backer of the Azov Battalion. And still more. In March of 2019, members of the Azov Battalion's National Corps attacked the home of Viktor Medvedchuk, the leading opposition figure in Ukraine, accusing him of treason for his friendly relations with Vladimir Putin. Zelensky's administration escalated the attack on Medvedchuk, on, on Medvedchuk, shuttering several media outlets he controlled in February 2021 with the open approval of the U.S. State Department and jailing the opposition leader for treason three months later. Kolomoiskoy justified his actions on the grounds that he needed to, quote, fight against the danger of Russian aggression in the information arena, unquote. Next, in August of 2020, Azov's National Corps opened fire on a bus containing members of Medvedchuk's party, Patriots for Life, wounding several with rubber-coated steel bullets. And they've also been executing non-combatants attempting to flee the combat zone. According to one Greek resident in Mariupol, recently interviewed by a Greek news station, quote, when you try to leave, you run the risk of running into a patrol of the Ukrainian fascists, the Azov Battalion, he said, adding, again, quoting, they would kill me and are responsible for everything, unquote. Footage online appears to show uniform members of a fascist 
Ukrainian militia in Mariupol violently pulling fleeing residents out of their vehicles at gunpoint. Other video filmed at checkpoints around Mariupol showed Azov fighters shooting and killing civilians attempting to flee. And by the way, uh, it wasn't Azov, it was other right, right sector. Uh, a Ukrainian diplomat who was part of their diplomatic team negotiating with the Russians was summarily executed and his body left in the street. And yet, we don't hear about that. So, uh, the Ministry of Truth is very much uh, at work. We will talk more about how uh, the Jewishness of Zelensky is used to uh, basically rebut any notion that he could be a Nazi. It's basically, uh, in effect, in principle, a Nazi iteration of identity politics. He couldn't be a Nazi because he's a Jew. And as we looked at in uh, the remarkable book, Martin Borman, Nazi in Exile by Paul Manning, available on the SpitfireList.com website. That's one of the anti-fascist books. Paul Manning wrote, and by the way, his work was underwritten by CBS News, and he did this at the behest of his colleague and friend, Edward R. Merle. I spoke with one Jewish businessman in Hartford, Connecticut. He had arrived there quite unknown several years before our conversation, but with Borman money as his leverage. Today, he is more than a millionaire, a quiet leader in the community, with a certain share of his profits earmarked, as always, for his venture capital benefactors. This has taken place in many other instances across America and demonstrates how Borman's people operate in the contemporary commercial world in contrast to the fanciful nonsense with which Nazis are described in so much, quote, literature, unquote. So much emphasis is placed on select Jewish participation in Borman companies that when Adolf Eichmann was seized and taken to Tel Aviv to stand trial, it produced a shockwave in the Jewish and German communities of Buenos Aires. More about this next week. Well, Mr. Kolomoyskoy is one of those, uh, I've termed the Borman Jews. Again, Jewish identity is meaningless, and not only were Wealthy Jews who agreed to finance the Nazi party under Hitler, given, quote, honorary Aryan status, but there are the Borman Jews that we've just spoken about. There was a prominent fascist element in the Zionist movement, uh, and uh, it is now ascendant in uh, Israel. We've spoken about that in a number of programs and posts. Uh, we'll perhaps uh, cite some of those next week. Uh, I hate talking about the uh, Israeli-Palestinian conflict. For those who would uh, label anyone talking about that a self-hating Jew or whatever, uh, the chief of staff of the Israeli Air Force said basically that what happened in Europe in the 30s was happening in Israel at that point in time. This was on Holocaust Remembrance Day, Remembrance Day of 2014. Can't call the chief of staff of the Israeli Air Force a self-hating Jew or that he is ignorant of what is going on in Israel. However, we are all out of time. This concludes for the record program number 1232. How many lies... Before you belong to the lie, part five. This is being recorded on March 9th of 2022. I'm Dave Emery. Have fun.